Chapter 16, Business of Humanity. The opening quote for this chapter is by Carl Gustav Jung. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. During the application process for the coaching program, the types of questions I'm required to answer encourage me. It gives me confidence that the people who created the course have a really good grasp on what they're doing. Yet despite this observation, I secretly believe that with more than 30 years of spiritual practices and the advent of my kundalini process, I was probably more advanced compared to others that were to be my peers. I probably did not need to be coached. I just wanted to learn how to coach others. Boy, was I clueless. When the first day of training arrives, I find myself at a large U-shaped table with 17 other classmates. There is another table where the three who are to lead the training sit. One is a brilliant man named James, who is the founder of Integral Coaching, along with a wonderful woman named Pam and her amazing colleague, Diane. As a means of making introductions, they announce that they will give each person a full 10 minutes to talk and introduce themselves. We are instructed to tell the group who we are, why we are there, and what we expect from the course and what we plan to do with the training. Pam is the first to speak, then Diane, then James, and the rest. From where I'm sitting, it becomes clear that the direction of the introductions is going away from me, meaning I will be the last person to speak. I really hate this sort of thing because while I'm trying to listen to what others are saying, I'm distracted by the need to prepare my own introduction. This is a real problem for me. I must appear completely present to what each person is sharing while making certain that when my turn comes, I sound smart, impressive, and spiritual. After all, I have been doing spiritual practices for more than 30 years and must appear cool. I tell you, old habits die hard, if ever. As each person completes his or her introduction, James asks permission to ask a question or make a comment, which in turn is quite revelatory. I mean, this guy is sharp. By the time it's my turn, I have part listened and part prepared for what I'm going to say. I was painfully aware of my need to project the image that I had my shit together, was a spiritually advanced being, whatever that means, who was calm and collected, and that I had to sound selflessly confident. So after saying my name and where I'm from, the first thing out of my mouth is I was driven to spirituality from a very young age. When I'm done with my 10-minute introduction, feeling smug and thinking, yep, I nailed it, James says, Gary, can I ask a question? Oblivious to my impending doom, I say, sure. It was a hallmark moment. James inquires, Gary, I'm wondering why you said you were driven to spirituality. Quietly annoyed that he had missed the whole point, I reply by repeating what I've already said about my stepfather's penchant for demanding I reduce my feelings to logic so that he could deconstruct them. Politely, James responds by saying that he understands this, but asks again, why do you say you were driven? I look at James as the rest of the class watches, only to find I do not have a ready answer. As my mind races around for a logically valid response, like a rat trying to escape its maze, I find all trails lead to the explanation already given, making my only recourse to chase dozens of other answers to their logical dead ends. The seconds seem endless as I am dumbfounded by the fact that for the first time in my life, I have no explanation that is capable of saving myself. I can only look at James as my thought process flatlines like the proverbial deer caught in the headlights of an oncoming car. Finally, I give up and say, I don't know. 
James cordially thanks me for my honest answer and then turns to the rest of the class to state something to the effect that the stories that make up our lives arise from beliefs not founded in reality. Even though our beliefs determine the landscape and boundaries of how we relate to reality, they are fundamentally not true and are therefore self-limiting, such that we become bound and imprisoned by them. Consequently, whenever we are given the opportunity to look beyond the limits of our beliefs, we find no vocabulary to describe the events of our life because we have no words for that uncharted territory. He then says, this is what Gary has just experienced and what the rest of you can expect from this work. Later that evening while doing the day's homework, I'm reeling from the realization that my entire life has been a sham. I'd never been a spiritual person. I was just trying to escape the unsavory aspects of life and had found refuge in the notion, knowledge, and practices of spirituality. Like pulling a loose thread on a sweater, James had gently unraveled my entire universe, and this was only the first day. What horrors awaited me tomorrow, or the rest of the year for that matter? Fitfully, I try to sleep that night as vivid dreams of past lives, deaths, and dramas parade prophetically before my inner eye. Somehow, I survive the remaining three days and return home to Boulder, filled with new insights regarding the factors participating in the outcomes of my life. Over the next 12 months, I go through my personal coaching process, follow the curriculum, and begin to understand the forces at work in individual life. I continue to conduct the searches I can, complete my homework, and coach clients for my case histories while trying to apply what I am learning to the world of business. Through all of this, I am still looking for evidence to support my theory that the challenges that express themselves in the corporate being are the same as those that impede individual life. The difference is that when it's a single person, outcomes are empowered by one person's belief. But in the corporate hierarchy, that one person's beliefs are amplified by the members of the organization. This is how the beliefs and blind spots of the most powerful people in any organization are responsible for the successes and obstacles that plague it. Having consulted with hundreds of companies and worked with as many CEOs, I'd had the opportunity to observe executives as they migrated from one company to another. From my business interactions, I was able to see how the corporate culture that evolved around them were creating the outcomes of the company. But at the time, I did not understand how it was all happening. When I was living in Iowa, I had written a letter to the then CEO of Menographics in an attempt to tell him about a trend I observed in his managers and directors. I wanted to inform him of the impact that trend was having on the company. Even though the CEO instructed his VP of administration to contact me to find out what the hell I was talking about, I was unable to clearly convey what I wanted to say. Even so, I knew I was onto something important about how CEOs were responsible for the outcomes in a company, but not in the way the venture capital community or the management consultant understood it. There was something truly alchemical taking place in corporations, and I wanted to find out what it was. With the advent of my coaching training, I now had a vocabulary for describing what had previously remained elusive in my letter to mentor and began to develop an understanding about the hidden power of CEOs, which previously had only been an intuition. I reasoned that if the outcomes in personal life are the direct result of one's practices of thinking, believing, feeling, and behaving, then those same mechanics must be at work in business. People don't transform into something other than what they are when at work. We may present a different version of ourselves, but clearly, at least in my experience, the notion that others would miraculously become free from the pattern just because they put on a business suit was unrealistic. 
While it's true that many practice behaviors they believe will garner the favorable admiration and opinion of others, doing so only serves to perpetuate the belief that they cannot be who they are and have what they want. What is fundamentally at work here, and this is important to understand, is an attempt to hide what cannot be hidden. So, as much as we might like to suppose that we can escape ourselves by trying to push who we are underground, believing so does not make it so. That is why on many occasions I've observed executives, directors, managers, and employees fly into tantrums befitting those of a child, interspersed with bouts of silence, shyness, coldness, and pouty I don't knowness when confronted with the possibility of not getting what they wanted. Each person sought safety through the same emotional posturing that was patterned for them early in life just as I had, and would years later find it manifesting as the cause of their rantings and ravings. Why do we do this? Hell, why do any of us continue to practice beliefs that no longer serve us? We do so because it has not yet dawned on us that such behavior is evidence of our one thing not working, and without a perspective from which to realize the failure of such practices, we try again and again to do the same thing, expecting a different outcome. The truth is that a belief can never connect us with reality, whether economic, social, religious, or spiritual. Belief is only a placeholder for a reality that has not yet arrived. Yet isn't it interesting that the more our beliefs fail to connect us with what's real, the more we become addicted to them, which only serves to further distract us from what is actually going on. Were this the occasional case for an individual, this would not be so critical. But the architecture of the corporation is an entirely different animal and how it imbues the CEO or whoever is the most powerful representative of a company with the collective power of those around them. The kind of power I'm speaking of here is that portion of each employee's authority to know and choose for themselves, which has been abdicated to the CEO to be administered for the greater common good. This is the real power of groups, corporations, and governments. What I have since realized about this power is its ability to become expressed as the corporate body, in the same way that the forces operating on the level of the individual generated the outcomes in the body of individual life, the employees provided the forces that amplified the CEO's patterns, which then generated their outcomes in the body of corporate life. Moreover, and this is the tricky part, just as the outcomes in individual life are manifestations of interior thoughts and emotions, beliefs, and sensations, whatever issues the company experiences, is not only the mirror image of those operating in the life of the CEO, but they can only be transformed and resolved from inside the CEO. In other words, the CEO can't transform the problems that she or he sees plaguing the corporate body by attacking where they show up any more than we can transform a reflection in a mirror by beating on the glass itself. But we are not taught the truth of this, so we make it the other guy's problem which sounds reasonable enough because, after all, the problem does seem to show up over there when engineering has missed its deadline, marketing its projection, or manufacturing its quota. Not only are CEOs not taught this, neither are the members of the venture community or other board members. As a result, fear becomes the primary tool of control, instigation, and motivation, thereby proving the adage, if the only tool you have is a hammer, after a while, all problems look like nails. So, those on the top beat on those below them in the corporate food chain, creating, fostering, and enabling an environment of fear, separation, and scarcity. No wonder our world is such a mess. Curiously, 
All of this proceeds from the incredible power of an invisible thing called belief. But the most amazing thing is that beliefs are not the reality they point to. In the sense, beliefs are not the reality, never have been, and never will be. If they were, they would be known as the truth, and we would call them such. Rather, they're the placeholders for something that is not yet present, like a, a signpost that points the way between where one is and where one is going. In that way, they're useful as long as we don't confuse the signpost for the goal. But most importantly, beliefs are created to make us feel safe about the journey ahead, and we have become so invested in their use that we have lost the ability to distinguish them from the goal. And even though we endlessly experience discord from their improper use, which reminds us each and every time we've confused what we believe for what we know, we persist in our confusion. In fact, we live our lives as if our beliefs were truth, and this habit has a very profound effect on our life. There is the story of a little boy whose mother died from an illness during the Great Depression, who but for the lack of money for medicine, could have been saved. This little boy, observing the suffering of his mother and the failure of his father to provide the money she needed to survive, silently and privately comes to several conclusions about the way the world works. First, he decides to believe the world is brutal and unsafe for taking his mother from him. Second, he thinks his father is a failure for his inability to attend to the needs of his mother by not earning enough money to keep her safe from the brutality of the world. Third, he makes a vow to never be like his father, unsafe, vulnerable, at risk, or poor. After many years, the little boy is now a man in his 60s. By the time he was 30 years old, he had become a multimillionaire and was able to buy anything he wanted whenever he wanted. He could pay for the best homes, clothing, and medical care the world could provide. And with his wealth, he takes care of his immediate and extended family. One fall day during his yearly physical, the doctor finds an abnormality in his blood work. The doctor calls the man back to his office to explain that he needs to schedule another series of tests. When asked why, the doctor, who also happens to be his best friend, tells him that there were some abnormal findings and that he wants to run more tests and perhaps solicit a second opinion from one of his trusted colleagues. Immediately upon hearing this, the little boy, now the man, silently flies into a panic. His mind races as he thinks, how could this be? I just got back from skiing in the Alps. I feel great. The best ever, actually. I take scrupulously good care of myself and have never had so much as a cold or headache my entire life. How can this be? As he leaves the office, the doctor tells him not to worry. Let's just do the tests and see where we are. As he leaves the doctor's office, a long-forgotten feeling washes over him, one he does not recognize at first. First, he feels frightened, fragile, and unprotected against the injustice and brutality of the world. Next, he feels as if he is losing something, and with it comes the anger and resentment for not taking better care of himself. Finally, he realizes that despite all he has accomplished in his life, he is a failure, just like his father. In his unraveling, he glimpses how his fear of life and the possibility of failure had participated in every single moment since his mother died and he first began resenting his father. Returning home that evening to the sprawling wooded estate that housed his family and his ailing father, he feels ashamed for the disdain and resentment he held for him all these years. Quietly, he enters his father's room to find him reading in his favorite chair in front of the fireplace. He comes to stand before him, but not as he has in the past, with an arrogance born of the sense of dominion and superiority 
whose intent was to remind his father of his failure as a man. Instead, he comes with a sense of humility and gazes into the tired and beaten eyes of his father, asking forgiveness for having misunderstood and misjudged him for the death of his mother. And in that single moment which revealed the grace of his son's surrender to the truth of life, his father sees the soft glow of love and regret and smiles to once more see the little boy that loved him once so long ago return to him, as if no time and no thing had ever come between them. After that evening spent with his father in their silent reunion, the man returns to the doctor's office with a newfound appreciation for life. On the way there, he sees the world with new eyes and a much lightened heart. Freed from the burden of beliefs that once limited him, he sees a love-filled world that no words or logic could ever describe. Silently, he submits to the doctor's needle as he takes another sample of blood. Almost absent-mindedly, the man thanks his doctor, wondering if this is the same man who has been his physician his entire adult life, because all seems different. Later that day, the doctor calls to say that he apologizes for the alarm he had caused earlier in the week, but it seems that the cause for alarm in the first tests seemed to have miraculously disappeared from the second. He says he has no explanation that he has triple-checked his findings, and again apologizing for the confusion, informs him that he is, as always, in perfect health. The man, appreciative of his doctor's efforts, tells him there is nothing to apologize for and thanks him for being his friend. Such is the power of belief. The moral of this story is that even though beliefs are responsible for structuring our reality, we become trapped within them, especially when forgetting that we are the ones that created them. Unaware of this, we find ourselves constrained by the circumstances of our life until the time comes when we realize that beliefs are powerful operators that, when hidden, confine life to the limitations of their view long after we have forgotten about them. This is what makes them difficult to address and correct.